welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I am drinking some tea without seeing in it. <laughs> what? Seeing. <laughs> seeing. Yeah. Oh. Uh, it's the caffeine found in tea. Oh. But I, it's spelled, so it's spelled T-H-E-I-N-E, but it's pronounced like thee. Ian. Ian. Huh. So, but I'm drinking chamomile tea. tea. <laughs> so, th- I just got off work. <laughs> yeah. So, Courtney, it's okay. Courtney's on vacay. I am for these next couple oh, weeks. Shoot. shoot. Uh, but Trish is not. So, um, yeah. Well, I'll do my best to not whatever. But, yeah, she's on vacation because she still works in that kind of setting where she gets, the, you know, the fun breaks and I don't. So, But, hey, we do both have break from school for the next three weeks. We both. Okay, I finished my first semester. Was it your second term? It's my second term, but my first within my first semester. Okay. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. Hers is a weird schedule. But, anyways, we finished it. Woo! Yay! Until, like, January 8th. I'm ready. And then the next one starts. Yep. And then I'm not doing summer school, but I think you probably are. I have to. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not in a big hurry <laughs> to do this. So Yeah. I'm um, hoping I might get my practicum done over the summer, though. Is that just, like, clinical hours, basically? Pretty much. Yeah. That I can do at my job. That makes sense. Might as well. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, um, we are back for part two of Andre Chiquitillo. Yes, we are. uh, But before we jump into that, Courtney has a question for me and for herself. So in thinking about like the whole new year, new me thing that some people buy into, um, sometimes that goes along with new haircuts. Mm -hmm. And so my question for you is, what is the worst haircut you have ever had? It's a toss up. I had one in like seventh grade where I just couldn't explain to the dress, the hairdresser that I wanted like a pixie cut. I didn't know that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. And instead I got like a bad news bears bowl haircut and it was Ooh. awful. And then when I was 15, um, I think I got in an argument with my dad <laughs> and I was like, I'll show you. And um, I took scissors to my own hair, not knowing Ooh. how short they could cut. And they can cut very, very short. And so half of my head ended up having to be shaped. It grew out and looked okay. Mm-hmm. But at first it, it was not good. I was going to say, I mean, that's a look now these days. Yeah. The half head shaped thing. Yeah. So it was like the, my friend of me, like the front of my mm-hmm. hair was like still long and then the back was, you know, and when it grew out, it was like spiky in the back and then kind of like, like the long bangs and stuff. And that was okay. But, um, before it grew out, it was just, a, it was a mistake and oh. I cried <laughs> did that. And yeah, you know, I was, sh- so what about yeah. you? So for me, it's a, a similar situation with your first one, but it was, not by choice. So when I was in fourth grade, there was a good old outbreak of lice in my school. Ooh, and you have thick hair. And I have thick hair. Yeah. So my mom decided to just cut all my hair off and took me to like a place to like cut it short. And it was in some sort of like kind of pixie, but not a good shaped pixie. Mm-hmm. And I remember 
the woman who was cutting my hair didn't seem to speak very good English. Mm -hmm. And so like I was like crying and being like, it's too short. It's too short. And she thought that I was saying to cut it shorter. Oh. And so eventually she's like, if I cut it shorter, it won't look okay. And I'm like, it doesn't look okay now. Oh, the language barrier. And then I had a really awful, very short haircut for most of fourth grade. Your hair grows fast. Did it not used to? I mean, it does in, like, comparison to others. But, yeah. like, it would still have taken was six months short? at least to get to, like, chin-length hair. Yeah. It was very short. Well, and it's so thick, too, it might look a little froey. Yeah, it it was not good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I looked like a boy. Me, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I felt like I did anyways. Yep. Yeah. So I'm just picturing, like, my fourth grade school picture with my very short, ugly boy haircut mm-hmm. and my pink floral dress mm. that I was wearing because I love to be girly. This was like a juxtaposition of hair matching. My The picture, the yearbook picture of me with that haircut, I look like I'm crying. I'll show it to you. I have it out there. It's like, it just was a bad shot, but mm. it does look like I'm crying. Mm. Man. Haircuts could be traumatic. Totally. Yes. Especially, I mean, I don't want to say it because, but for women back especially back then mm-hmm. it was like I don't know maybe it is for guys too I can't speak I'm not a guy but I know that you know a lot of women I did a lot of stuff with my hair same I like I that's like an accessory mm-hmm. so I have since had my hair in like a pixie and stuff mm-hmm. before but it was my choice yeah and I like knew how to take care of it by then yeah well, anyway, yeah. So again, um, like I said, we're doing Andre part two. We're only this is only two parts. I probably could have done more, but I don't know, maybe I'm just tired. I think we <laughs> covered a lot, yeah, in this one because I I really encourage you guys because this takes place um, in Eastern Europe and it is so different the the <clears throat> their justice system and everything to look into like any of the documentaries. There are a few. Because it was a really, it was really interesting watching that stuff, um, or I thought so. Yeah, definitely. So it was just really different. So um, I hope maybe this will motivate you to at least like go on YouTube and put in Andre Chica- Andre Chikatilo and see what you find because it's pretty interesting and he's really out there. It's in the trial too. We'll talk about that later. But um, why don't you recap, Courtney, please? Right. So last time, we learned that little Andre was born during a famine in Eastern Europe and grew up during World War II. He was a small child who was teased and bullied by his peers at school. And while he grew into an average-sized man and was very intelligent, he struggled with social anxiety and a hard time making friends or finding romantic partners. He went to a technical college, served in the military as a communication specialist, and then eventually got married. He then got a degree in Russian literature and started working as a teacher. His students did not respect him, his co-workers didn't like him, and he was very depressed. But then he started grooming and molesting his students, who reported him, but he was not arrested. Yeah, so when we left, he was asked to resign from the school he was teaching at, but nothing was ever reported regarding his hideous behavior toward the children he had abused. And he quickly found another job at a technical school in Nova Shakhinstink. 
Novoshak, Novoshiktinsk. Sorry. His youngest students at this school were 15. So it was uh, def- an older peer group or age group of kids. And he was actually too afraid of getting in trouble with them to try anything with them. He preferred the younger, more vulnerable children for, you know, his sick attentions. However, he was still unpopular with the kids and staff at the school. He just must not have been likable in this capacity. He was so unliked that when they had to make cutbacks, he was the obvious target and was let go. But he found another job in a town called Shakti, Shakti, and his wife, Faina, also got hired at this school. So husband and wife are working together. And Andre taught a little bit um, at the school, but his main duty was being in charge of the hostel where the boys aged 15 to 19 were living. And ironically, it was his job to be sure that the boys were moral, upright young men. And the students, of course, didn't like him. And there were physical fights in the hostel, like with him. His wife, however, was liked by the students and staff. So, Courtney, I have to imagine that his wife being popular and Andre not would make things worse. What kind of dynamic do you think is occurring between them? So it is hard to speak directly about their relationship and how it worked. But there are a number of ways that Faina's popularity could impact their marriage. If Andre were jealous of his wife's social standing, it could lead to resentment towards her for having basically what he wanted. And then the combination of the two social standing could also work in different ways. On the one hand, Faina being well-liked could have led to Andre maybe being more accepted or at least tolerated at social gatherings. But on the other hand, Andre's awkwardness could have led to Faina being left out of social gatherings. So I would imagine that there would be some sort of upset feelings on either or both sides of the relationship, even if they maybe were not expressed outwardly. And like if she didn't know how unpopular he was at his other jobs, maybe he didn't disclose that to her. It might be kind of embarrassing like for a wife to know that. I don't know. I would be embarrassed. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Later, some of the boys reflected on an incident at the hostel when Andre was there. They said that in 1978, one evening, Andre went into the dorm room at night when the boys were sleeping and went to a 15-year-old's bed. He apparently went under the sheets and started to fillet the young man, and then the boy woke up. Andre fled. He came back a few, few days later to try that again, but the boys were awake and made him leave. Even though the story became the gossip of the school, somehow he again escaped punishment. Faina worried about her own marital bed issues, and she encouraged Andre to seek help from a psychiatrist. He refused, and his pride was badly hurt, as men in Russia at this time had very clearly defined roles that he knew he was failing to meet. What do you think, Courtney? So this seems like the right time to remind our listeners that Andre had difficulty with erectile dysfunction when attempting to have sex with women his own age, including his wife. His sexual preferences included adolescent girls and sometimes boys, um, and he was more aroused when masturbating after using force and causing fear in his victims. His sexual impotence had been a major source of shame in the past for him, and so Faina suggesting that this was still a problem likely would have been devastating. 
So Andre was super sneaky when he bought a shack type home for a few hundred rubles and didn't tell his family about it. Andre was to the point in his serial killing development where just fantasizing about doing things wasn't enough anymore and he needed to take it further and he needed a place where he could do his dastardly deeds. And it started out with him promising sex workers food and drink in exchange for their services and they would go with him to the little hut. Oftentimes, he could not achieve sexual relations, but he still had them do things to him or that he did to them that he wouldn't ask his wife to do. He wanted young girls, though. He almost got arrested once when he got caught inside a girl's bathroom at a school. He managed to get two six-year-old girls back to his house, and he assaulted them there. On December 22, 1978, Andre left work around 5 o'clock and went to the supermarket. He found a girl there that he became infatuated with. He coerced her into going to his house when she needed to use a toilet. As soon as he had her in his hut, he changed from a kindly grandfather to a savage beast. He fell on top of her and covered her mouth as she screamed. He ripped her clothes off and attempted to rape her. His body, however, was not responding. What he did manage was to make her bleed, and when he saw the blood... He was not repulsed like when he saw his own blood. He was extremely aroused. And per the book, he claimed that he had the most intense pleasure he had ever had from this sight. Quote, it was the most decisive moment of his life. Until then, he had felt only the need to hurt and to dominate, but had been a matter only of pushing and squeezing and slapping. Now he understood that he needed much more. He needed blood. End quote. And having made the discovery, he wasn't going to just leave it at that. He wanted to have another orgasm as good as the first. And for that, he realized he needed more blood. He then decided he wanted to make her bleed a little more. So he used a little pocket knife he had for protection against his pupils and at first thought about just scratching her. But in the end, he rammed it into her stomach and realized he was also getting release from her pain. He continued to stab her over and over and ultimately ended the attack by strangling the poor girl to death. Courtney, bloodlust much? That is actually the perfect way to describe what's happening. Blood play and knife play are both recognized fetishes in which a person is sexually aroused by blood and or by cutting a partner to produce blood. Now, most people with this kind of kink engage in it with consenting partners and take care to mitigate any sort of risks. Um, Andre, of course, did not. And he had already been exhibiting sexually sadistic behaviors, feeding off of the fear of his victims and the power and control he had over them. You know, it requires a significant amount of power over another person to be able to cut their skin. And power is something that Andre just did not experience much in other parts of his life. Well, Andre reflected upon this first kill later on and claimed that he finally felt free. When the girl lay dead and Andre came back to Earth from wherever the hell he just went to, he realized what he had done. There was blood everywhere, and the girl was hardly even recognizable. He claims he was filled with, quote, horror and remorse. But then the panic set in. He started to gather all of the bloodstained clothing and picked up the small body. No one was outside of his hut, so he took all of it to the nearby river and threw her and her belongings into the current. Her body was swept away, but his aim on her bag was off, and he actually threw it across the river onto the other bank. He left the scene. Andre, in his haste to get home to his wife, forgot to turn off the light in his hut, and he also missed some blood left at the hut. 
Her body was found two days later by police on Christmas Eve, 1978. She had not gone far from where she had met her fate. Officers started to go door to door looking for information. One of Andre's neighbors told the police that she noticed that his light had been on all night. She also told them of her suspicions of him hiring sex workers based on the constant traffic of women in and out of his house. The police spoke to Andre, and they picked up right away that he was off. The police looked into his background and were made aware of some of the reasons he had changed jobs so often. They questioned him at least eight times, but he had an alibi. His wife said he was home, and they never looked into that to see if it were actually true. Fortunately for Andre, a released killer was living in the same neighborhood, and he was released from prison after six years, and he fit the profile. He was there. The police were under pressure, and so they charged him with that crime. He would confess to it. I'm unsure of the coercion factor there, and Andre was forgotten. Courtney? This is the kind of situation that can be so frustrating to me, when police actually have the right suspect, but don't or can't charge them. And also, given everything that Faina knew about his abusive past students, I am surprised that she continued to give him that false alibi for so long. Yeah. And I suspect that based on what I learned about when I was reading this, that there was probably quite a bit of coercion by the police and some probably force and stuff to get this guy to confess to something he probably didn't do. Oh, I'm sure there was. So what I'm learning in class is that there are a lot of false confessions out there for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and that's in the United States where there's supposedly laws to protect people from that. So just saying. Andre was encouraged to leave his employment with the school voluntarily after this whole thing happened, which he did. He had enough of teaching. So even though he was a well-educated man, he got a job as a supply clerk. This job required a lot of traveling, which may have appealed to Andre. But this job required a person who was good at persuading others. And Andre was anything but a salesman. On September 3rd, 1981, Andre befriended 70-year-old Larissa Tchenko on one of his trips. She accepted his invitation to go walking. When he veered them off the main road, he attacked her and pushed her to the ground. When she started to scream, he shoved dirt into her mouth and then began to beat her prior to strangling her. When he had killed her, he completed himself sexually on her lifeless body. Then he bit off one of her nipples. This was two years after his first murder, so he waited a while, um, but he didn't panic this time. He went mad, running around her, picking up her clothes and throwing them all over the place in a frenzied celebration. About 30 minutes later, he started to clean up the crime scene. He covered the body with debris and hid the clothing in the underbrush. He did not feel the same remorse that he felt with his first murder. Quote, he needed only suffering. He wanted to see the pain of his victims, to hear them cry out in agony. That was how he got his kicks, end quote. Um, Courtney, you know, like I said, he waited two years for his second kill, but look how far he came. Yeah, I imagine that he had a lot of time to think about and replay that first murder in his mind. And being the smart man he was, he probably also thought about how he would do things differently next time. Yeah. Andre managed to keep himself from killing for another nine months, but as we all know, just like a drug addiction, the killing addiction will become ever more present to the murderer. In June of 1982, his next victim was selected. 13-year-old Lubia Biryuk was walking to the store to get her mom groceries when she encountered the nearly 50-year-old Andre. 
He casually walked next to her and started talking to her. When he was sure no one else would see, he savagely attacked her, pushed her to the ground, and attempted to rape her. But he couldn't. He then started to stab her and cut different parts of her body. This torture fed his sadistic needs. He killed her and then threw her and her belongings into the woods. She was found two weeks later. Andre killed six more people before the end of 19, before the end of 1982. His attacks got more and more savage. He would deliberately prolong the killing to get more pleasure. He would rip open their stomachs and he would slice off sexual organs. The forensic evidence suggested that he would do these surgery type procedures while the victim was still alive. One thing that the bodies had in common was that there were usually stab runes around the eyes. It was almost like Andre's signature. Courtney, do you think it was shame that caused Andre to stab out the eyes? It could have been shame and, you know, not wanting his depravity to be witnessed. It could also have been a way of increasing fear in the victims, especially if he stabbed the eyes early in the attack so the victims wouldn't know what was coming next. It could also be a roundabout way of expressing his own disgust about having poor eyesight himself. Courtney, you have some dark thoughts. <laughs> I didn't even think about him stabbing out the eyes to induce more fear by blinding his victims. I watch a lot of true crime. I guess. Gosh. <laughs> On December 11th, 1982, Andre met a 10-year-old girl named Olga Stolmachanuk while riding a bus. That was the last time she was seen. A witness described that she was taken by the hand of a middle-aged man. Man, Andre, quote, lured the girl to a cornfield on the outskirts of the city, stabbed her in excess of 50 times around the head and body, ripped open her chest, and excised her lower bowel, lower bowel and uterus. That one I found on Wikipedia. Just saying. Because of the viciousness of the crimes and the way that some of the organs of his victims were missing, the police at at first thought perhaps there was some sort of organ black market thing happening or even maybe a satanic cult of some kind that was sacrificing victims. If it was a single person committing the crimes, the police thought that they must be mentally ill, fair, or homosexual. In fact, the police started questioning known sex offenders, and again, according to Wikipedia, the... So the following um, happened because of these interrogations. So beginning in September 1983, several young men confessed to the murders. So most of these men were often intellectually disabled and they admitted to the crimes only after they were under like a really intense, brutal interrogation. Also what happened was three known homosexuals and a convicted sex offender committed suicide as a result of the investigators' heavy-handed tactics But also what happened was more than 1,000 unrelated crimes, including 95 murders, 140 aggravated assaults, and 245 rapes were solved. That's crazy. Um, What do you think about that, Corny? So I have two separate thoughts. First, it is horrible how the police targeted disabled and homosexual men and engaged in coercive methods to blame the crimes on them. It seems potentially like this was used as an excuse to get, kind of, quote, undesirables off the streets. Second, if those 1,000 crimes were legitimately solved, then at least one good thing would come from this. However, it is not great that it took something like a serial child murderer for them to investigate these other crimes fully. (laughs) And who knows if the crimes were actually solved. Right. They might have just been closed with people being blamed 
right. you know, that may or may not have done them. But let's hope that actually that wasn't the case and these crimes were legitimately solved by people who actually committed them. And that would be that amazing. That would be amazing, yeah. Well, Andre continued to murder young boys and girls. And in September 1984, the police saw him molest a woman in a bus station. What did you say he had? Bristophilia? Uh, frauderism. What is Bristophilia? Bristophilia? <laughs> I from? have no idea what that is. Wait, that, hold on. That is something. What is Bristophilia and why did it come my head? Wait, I'm pausing. Um, so Courtney Googled Bristophilia and that's when you're sexually aroused by criminals. So that just popped into my head, but it has nothing to do with this case. He had, what did you say again? He had a, a fetish for frauderism, which Frauders. is, yeah, being um, aroused by unwanted touching or rubbing up against strangers. So he did this in front of um, some police. And so they arrested him and brought him to the station. They collected blood samples and semen samples and found some odd things in his briefcase. He was released, however, when the samples were inconclusive. He was arrested for stealing from his employer and sentenced to one year in prison, however, um, right around that time. He was released after three months for that. When he got out, he continued where he left off and started killing again. He killed about three victims a year until he was finally caught in 1990. So yes, it took years to catch this man. 38 victims had been attributed to the serial killer at this point by the police. An undercover agent saw Andre appear with mud on his clothes and what, what looked like blood on his cheek one day. And soon after that, a body was discovered near that place. So now they were really focusing in on him. So he was being looked at very closely. His employers were interviewed and they were able to see that he was on business trips in areas where victims had been murdered. They learned about what he was accused of at the schools that he had taught at, and he was now a person of very high interest, and they started to surveil him around the clock. They ended up making their move and arrested him in November. This time, when they did that, he had a wound on his finger that the medical provider determined was a human bite. Interestingly, interestingly, Although his blood was type A, which did not match what was on the victims, that was AB, his semen when tested was type AB. So I don't know if that's an anomaly or what, but that was why he was released the first time. Mm -hmm. It took some time, some coercion possibly, and and psychiatrists were brought in, but eventually Andre confessed. Okay, so one of the confessions that Andre made was this quote I noticed that a girl of 12 or 13 was coming behind me carrying some kind of bag in her hand I slowed down and let her catch up to me we walked together besides the woods I started talking to her about whatever I thought might interest her I remember she said she was going home from the store I pushed her off the road and grabbed her by the waist and dragged her into the woods I pushed her onto the ground tore off her clothing and lay on her at the same time I was stabbing her imitating sex From that, I ejaculated. I threw her clothes and a bag away somewhere, but I don't remember where. Um, That was him confessing to 13-year-old Lubav Biryek. And again, apologizing for the horrible names um, pronunciation. Andre described in great detail, as they all seem to do when they start to confess, what he did to his victims. He claimed that he tasted their blood. He would use his teeth to rip off genitalia, nipples, lips, and tongues. Sometimes he would cut out or bite at the tongue and then run around with the tongue in his hand. 
At first, he said he would chew the uterus and the testicles of his victims, but later he recanted that. He did maintain that he would swallow some of the nipples and some of the tongues. What do you think, Courtney? Well, we talked about cannibalism a little bit in our last case with Pee Wee Gaskins um, and how it's tied to power and control. For Andre, he targeted body parts associated with sexual behavior, the genitals, uterus, and nipples, and taunting, like the lips and the tongue, which were connected in his mind due to the severe bullying and sexual impotence he experienced as an adolescent and young man. Removing and consuming these body parts gave him the ultimate control and power over them. Do you think it had anything to do with the stories of his cousin slash brother being cannibalized when he was little? Do you think that played into it at all? Remember I mean, that? maybe. I mean, could have like, given kind him of the a weird I- coincidence. Yeah, could have given him the idea. Yeah. He'd been sort of thinking about that his whole life and wondering right. what that would taste like or what that would be like. Yeah. Well, on November 30th, he was formally charged with 36 murders that he committed over the eight years um, of his spree. He then confessed to an additional 20 murders. Andre completed an extensive psychological examination. He was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and found competent to stand trial. His trial was a big thing. Courtney and I watched part of it on TV. It took two days to read the indictments of all his crimes because there were so many charges. Courtney, do you want to describe the chaos of that trial? It really was chaotic. This case was huge in the media. It was the first one in, um, you know, the former USSR to be televised. Um, And so the courtroom was packed with spectators and members of the press. Andre was held in a metal cage for his own protection. The prosecutor was described as intentionally berating Andre, who in response would become uncooperative. He yelled out over the lawyers and the judge, went on rants about being repressed in childhood, sang socialist anthems, and repeatedly exposed himself in the courtroom. The doctors who had examined his mental state seemed to agree that these courtroom antics did not match his demeanor in private or their diagnosis and were therefore being performed intentionally to try and appear insane to avoid punishment. Yeah, so you can find um, these trial uh, videos of this trial like we saw Mm -hmm. on YouTube, like I said, and I encourage you to check it out because it's just, it's so different than from our courtrooms. It's a circus. Mm -hmm. Totally. It it was reminiscent of, um, what's his face, the Belgium guy, because he was also in the cage. Oh, Dutroux? Yes, Mark Dutroux. Ugh, horrible man. Um, on October 15th, 1992, uh, like, <laughs> the judge, <laughs> the judge, I'm so sorry, formally sentenced Chikatilo to death plus 86 years imprisonment for the 52 murders and five counts of sexual assault for which he had been found guilty. Andre would lose his appeal and he was on death row until February of 1994. So that's just two years. Um, and in America, people are on death row for decades, right? Yes. Not so there. Justice is very swift in that part of the world, or at least it was. Andre was escorted from his cell and taken to a soundproof room where he was shot behind the ear on Valentine's Day in 1994. Courtney? You know, I have to say there is something almost refreshing about a serial killer facing their punishment without any fanfare or attention. Yeah. It's like the opposite of Ted Bundy's execution, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, if if I'm remembering this right, 
it was like when he lost his appeal that it was like that day or like very close when he lost his appeal, they executed him. Right. And they just went and did it like, yeah. No waiting around for Mm -mm. decades and decades. Yep. For a date. Appeals after appeals after appeals and all that. Um, so yeah, that's the end of Andre Chikatilo. There were, you know, the book that we used, um, the red ripper, goes into a lot more detail than I, I did put here. So if you are interested in this case, I encourage you to, to check that out. There's pictures. Um, the, it's a lot focused on the police investigation on it because it took so long mm-hmm. to find him. And he was one that was questioned multiple times by the police. Right. So I think there was a little bit of an uproar from the public about that, if I remember correctly, because... Because they had him eight years ago? Yeah, multiple mm-hmm. times, but... Anyways, that's that. So Courtney is picking our next killer. Do you want to give us a little clue? Sure. So I found this next case, once again, through random book ordering. Um, And this time we are going back to the 1920s again um, with a killer that I think really epitomizes kind of that stereotypical psycho killer of lore. Oh. Courtney, what do you do if a weird, nearsighted Eastern European man invites you back to his shack in the woods? You go nuts, go home, and go to therapy. That's right. Everybody stay safe, and we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.